0: Ship, a guided crew through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me is Ellie Jacobs, King
1: of Kings. Look on his works, ye mighty, and despair. Hello, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge and plead and beg and besiege all of you two to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or whatever podcast listening service you use. And follow us on Twitter at taking ship, and that's ship with a P as Impurity. Plus, very exciting. We've gone full nineties and created a website with pictures and everything. We invite you to visit and leave a comment. Share it on your social medias. You can also drop us a line through the website about uh, the t-shirts that we are still considering. I think we're past considering. We're going to do it. It's just a question of when and how uh, t-shirts and whether you'd like one. Well, of course you'd like one. The other question
0: is, it's like a it's like a decent glass of whiskey. Of course they'd like one. The question is how many.
1: Right, um, but also sizes, which is similar to also glass a glass of whiskey. whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> that's all works. Out. Think of our T-shirts as a glass of whiskey. How many would you like, and in what size? I, that's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah. All right, Frank. What are we talking about today? So uh, we've got a bit oh, of a right, roundup. Got for the you. URL of the website. Yeah, yeah, Tom. Uh, you can go to www.takingship.com, and if that's too much for you, you, can just go to takingship.com, and that will also take you to the website. Yes. And it's taking ship, uh, the same p with purity that uh, the t- Twitters uses. Yeah. So there you have
0: it. So we've got kind of a roundup uh, for, for this week, uh, and maybe a little bit shorter episode uh, than, than we have had in, in the last week or so, which is, I, I think, good for everyone. Uh, but we're going to kick this thing off with a discussion of, uh, of, of a subject for great rejoicing. Uh, congratulations, everyone. The Korean War is over. Well, it's not over, but it may be over soon. Uh, uh, the uh, 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 leadership of North Korea and, and South Korea, uh, uh, Kim uh, Jong-un and uh, President Moon of uh, South Korea met in the Peace Village. And uh, I, I, in, in, I, at one point, incorrectly identified where they had met and, uh, and said that uh, uh, Kim Jong-un had gone to Seoul, which would have been a, a, a giant thing uh, and possibly the subject of a massive war. Uh, I was wrong about that. Uh, it is, in fact, the Peace Village. Uh, they met in the Peace Village. And among other things that were agreed, they discussed uh, the possibility of de- later this year declaring an official end to of the Korean War, which technically never ended. Uh, as Donald Trump would say, and very few people know that. Uh, He was aware of it. You'll be glad to know. Uh, But uh, the Korean War didn't technically end. Um, So they're discussing bringing a technical end to the Korean War and also uh, potentially uh, uh, North Korea moving away from its nuclear program. This, I am absolutely sure, North Korea's inclination to move away from its nuclear program has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that their nuclear testing facility, and I think is also involved in some of their development, uh, completely caved in. So it's like that. I'm I, I'm I'm absolutely positive that this is uh, there. That North Korea's interest in uh, in moving away from its nuclear program has nothing whatsoever to do with this fundamental piece of infrastructure just collapsed beneath them. Uh, so anyway, this is this is where we are. Uh, Donald Trump, as you might expect, is out here taking as much credit for it as he possibly can. Uh, you know, we we shall see. I have one particular concern. I mean, look, as George H. W. Bush said on the occasion, this is actually true. As George H. W. Bush said on the occasion of the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think it's a good development, and it is a good development. Uh, any reproachment on the Korean Peninsula is going to be a good development. I think uh, we shall wait and see. This is not the first time that North Korea has made uh, conciliatory noises only to go back on them and be unreasonable later. Uh, my fear has in the last thirty years. Third, yeah, it's it's not an, it's not common, but it's it's it is a a fairly it's it is it's part of their playbook, certainly my concern is that sooner or later this ends with a call or this this involves a call to end america's military presence on the peninsula hey the war is over we're not building nukes anymore why don't you tell these americans to go home and i don't and well i think there are a large number of people who would very understandably look forward to the day when America no longer has to maintain a significant military presence
1: on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Which, by the way, is upwards of like 50,000 troops plus families and support staff. And Yeah, it's every, huge. It, yeah, it's absolutely huge. Right in the middle of downtown Seoul. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's, it is it uh, is from the perspective of, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the purpose of it, in game, in game theory terms, uh, not to sound like, time for some game theory. No, we're not going to do God that. God damn it. God, I know, I just, I can't resist it. In, in game theory terms, it's a tripwire. Right? Like the, the point of having a couple of American divisions in, North, in Seoul is not that they would be able to resist by themselves a, uh, a, South Korea, a North Korean invasion of South Korea. The purpose for a facility like that is so that North Korea couldn't take any, any large-scale meaningful offensive action against South Korea without involving Americans. Uh, and then we would have then we would have to become involved. So the idea is it is impossible for North korea to, to conduct a limited military operation against South Korea without dragging us into it, which is of course the the stick. Uh, so at some point, I think you know there there's all sorts of reasons why we would like potentially to be able to reduce our presence on the peninsula. but I can't think of a single assurance that uh, North Korea, the DPRK, could possibly give <laughs> that anyone would accept for why we should. Uh, why you know for for when it is safe for America to withdraw from the peninsula I mean they'd have to de, they'd have to demobilize on a massive scale and have that demobilization verified and and you know if you think that's happening, uh you can pull the other one
1: yeah I, I, you know one of the interesting things uh during the Iran deal, which we should talk about a little bit in a second, um, was a lot of the opponents went back to talk about uh the North Koreans walking away from the um agreed framework that the Clinton administration agreed to with uh, Kim Jong Un's grandfather, um, and then was followed up by an agreement with uh, between Bush and his father. And, and it, 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 this is like like we said, this has been going on and on. Brett Stevens actually had a reasonable um, uh, timeline in his op-ed yesterday in the New York Times, uh, and that's one of the few times you'll hear us directly complimenting something Brett Stevens writes. Um, and speaking of reasonable game- timeline, he has re- he has risen to the standard of a reasonable timeline. Yeah. yeah, we'll give him that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Speaking of game theory, you know, in my limited understanding of it, I'm pretty sure every time Eric Garland uses it, uses it. He's not actually talking about game theory. Not at all. Yeah, not at okay. all. What he's talking about is fan fiction. Right. Right. Fanfic Garland. Um, anyway. So with North Korea, so during the Iran deal, um, uh, 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 first parts of it after it was uh, um, agreed to, and while the Senate was, de- was debating it and there was a lot of uh, opposition money being poured in and commercials and, lobbying going on from various different groups. Uh, one of the points that a lot of the op-eds that were being pushed out were, was talking about was that, uh, you know, we can't trust anybody because Iran, you know, North, we had this great agreement with North Korea and they walked away. And it was never a great um, comparison for starters because all the verification pieces that uh, existed in the agreed framework, um, most of them were just sort of ignored by the Bush administration. Um, it, it was it was not entirely, you know, the, the North Koreans fault Although they were looking to cheat and then basically the Americans said have at it um, And then a second f- significant flaw between the North Korean situation and the Iranian situation is the Iranians never had a bomb um, They were within weeks or months depending on which intelligence analysis you, you you decide to choose but they were they didn't actually have one whereas the North Koreans both have one and have demonstrated that they may have the delivery system to deliver it to United States uh, or at least Hawaii or or Guam uh, I suppose Um, the and then one of the other problems then that was sort of in the comparison to it was that people the people who advocated people like John Bolton are now National Security Advisor who advocated bombing the uh, Iranian uh, uh, nuclear facilities was that the idea the people who were um, for the deal would then say that uh, you can't bomb knowledge and once they've developed the knowledge You sort of were kind of stuck. Um, So if the case is that the North Korean facility has collapsed, which uh, what becomes another interesting aspect is we had a great deal more um, intel and insight into the Iranian program than we have into the North Korean program. I mean, we literally have no North Korean knowledge of what is actually going on in that country. It is a giant intelligence black hole. Uh, Not for lack of trying, but that's just limited. Extremely, it's not
0: that we have none, but we have because we've gotten some from defect. But it's it's but it's it's a pretty as compared to what we have. The window that we've had into into other nuclear programs and other regimes that we haven't liked all that much. Yeah,
1: it's it is a it is a much blacker hole than any other one. Right. So our understanding from again from sources whether it's the Chinese or seismic activity wherever else is that they're primary facility collapsed in, in into itself. It was under a mountain, and the mountain collapsed as mountains do, when you basically carve out everything underneath them and then blow yeah. up a bomb. And you're not especially responsible civil en- – you don't have a history of responsible or especially professional civil engineering to right. begin with. Or care about your citizens who were under said mountain.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But, I mean, I, and to be fair, like, first of all, who amongst us hasn't utterly collapsed on ourselves? I mean, uh, you know, let's let – Litio has no sin in this regard. Yeah, I mean, speaking of large glasses of whiskey – yeah, <laughs> that's entirely correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've undertaken many ambitious projects
1: only to collapse on myself. You know, <laughs> uh, But, you know, with North Korea, Frank, you're 100% right. At some point, it's going to result in the North Koreans insisting that the Americans leave the peninsula, Whether and then it'll be a question of what sort of verification they can offer or guarantees they can offer, or more important, what guarantees the Chinese can offer, um, and I don't know that there's anything that anybody's going to be particularly happy about because it really does boil down to if a regime is dead set on having a nuclear weapon, there is very little the rest of the world can do to prevent that from happening. Yeah. It's, an, it's an ugly reality, but a, but, a, but a simple one.
0: There are steps that we can take and, and, and we should obviously and we have. But, but ultimately, if, if the idea is, goddamn all of you, were going to do this thing. Uh, you know, there's very little that you can do, especially if that regime happens to be dug into the most entrenched defensive position in the world right uh, so I mean that it's yeah I mean that's the, I guess the whole point of this is there again to you know former president HW was not wrong uh, it was a good development uh, this is a good this is potentially a good development but but I think before we start handing out Nobel Peace Prizes to anyone
1: here uh, let's be aware of the of where this this particular road ends yeah I mean Kim has lost nothing at the, at this point and gained a tremendous amount Sure. Yeah. And that's, that's all honestly like the more he is seen and a lot of this is about his
0: desire internally and for his own sake to be seen as a, as a credible actor on the world stage, which he is, he is doing now. Him getting the meeting with Donald Trump will be, I mean, it's... It, it's a parcel of that that's why they've always this is one this is one of the things that that I think came up after Donald Trump was so pleased that the North Koreans had wanted to talk to him that it was a an epical moment uh, you know a Nixon goes to China type thing the North Koreans have been asking to talk to every president since Jimmy Carter yeah like, this is like this is this is something they do because they want to be seen as being co- as being equals with the United States and and in the grand affair and we have decided not to treat them that way because the United States was up until very recently, and you can make an argument still is, and a leader, if not the absolute leader of the free world, and North Korea is a, is, you know, is not, is not, yeah, <laughs> that's right, yeah, is an ostracized, is, is an ostracized state.
1: Yeah. So, speaking of, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I worry that all, all that may happen from this is that all this excitement, or actually might be a positive, all this excitement might mean that there'll be more mashery runs. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, honestly, it's an ill wind. It
0: really is uh speaking More of Alan Alda that's what the country wants That's you know that's that's what we've been that you know you're not wrong that's what we've been crying out for that's I mean, so god true. damn it
1: what was it it was Aaron Sorkin this week was saying NBC has asked him to bring to create a a, a west wing revival or something yeah you know i mean he's been it's singing true. that song for a while but like i mean you know que- god please no don't Aaron, do that if anything was... nbc if you're listening if you want to revival a we political, know you are. political show that is worthwhile parks and recreation yeah,
0: that's right. Or the uh, or the scripted drama Taking Ship, uh,
1: feature, which is about two white guys of the podcast. Yeah, we'll script it. Yeah, because yeah. I think you know network TV is probably more than just Casper mattress money. I would think so. Although I mean, any more, honestly, it's hard to tell. So, speaking of lands of bad options, and
0: by that I do mean North Korea, and I also mean uh, network television. Uh, another land of bad options: the Iran deal. Iran, uh, the Iran deal. You know, it's the gift that keeps on giving, in the sense that it is not, um, is back up again. It's in, it's back in the news as uh, the president must again decide uh, whether to to uh, certify uh, the deal
1: is still in place and continuing, or whether he is going to pull the plug on it. Right, so the uh, May twelfth is the next time in the six month time frame or three month time frame, whatever three month time frame that the uh, president has to by, by law that was passed by the by Congress, president has to come forward and sign waivers of the sanctions to continue them going, and certify that staying in the deal is in the best interest of the United States um, national security. Uh, Trump, since the campaign, has been saying he's going to tear up the deal, get out of it, it was the worst thing I ever agreed to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Few things have been as divisive as the Iran deal, I would say, in the last number of years. I would say healthcare and the Iran deal are kind of you know the two poles of the Obama administration, obviously, but few things have been as divisive as the Iran deal. Um, I certainly can say that I've lost friends over arguments that I've had with people about the Iran deal. Um, and I keep coming back to three uh, to a couple key questions. Um, the first and foremost one. Is does this deal as it exists right now and as it is being uh, According to intelligence agencies all over the world and according to the iaea uh, Via the un uh, that the iran is sticking to the letter of the agreement uh, Which to remind everybody involved them uh, Cutting down uh, to about 20 percent of the existing centrifuges they had Uh, getting rid of 97% of the uh, highly enriched uranium that they had, completely shutting down their plutonium reactor, allowing inspections uh, at all their sites um, and except, you know, Parchin, which is obviously um, a question, but there are other arguments that can be made that there's no way they can get away with anything without inspectors being able to find it even after the 180 days that go into the, the dispute process, because you can't just make radioactive isotopes disappear. Um, So that was all the things that the deal uh, uh, Gave the rest of the world verification that iran would stay at least one year away from being able to make a nuclear bomb for The better part of 15 years if not forever again because the deal codifies that iran will never pursue a nuclear weapon um So the question that that people just seem to decide not to ask or look past is does this deal flaws and all uh, Make america and its allies safer and there's it's Virtually impossible to answer that question without bringing in other aspects Uh, Iran's nefarious actions in the region um, Iran's chasing of ballistic missile technology, which is a considerable problem The timelines of the deal all these other things there are flaws to the deal but again keeping Iran boxed in and to the strictures the letter of the law of this deal for the next You know, whatever the original timelines of 10 15 years, whatever it might be Unquestionably makes America and its allies safer right now Sure. Most of the complaints that I that I've
0: seen from the right about the about the deal itself tend to revolve around again Iranian engagement in Syria, the 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 horrific um, proxy war playing out between Iran and Saudi Arabia and Yemen and other places. It's it tends to be about Iranians doing bad things elsewhere, and 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 that's and, and the point and that is certainly happening, and that is of grave concern. The Iran nuclear deal is the Iran nuclear deal it wasn't the Iran does everything we say deal because that deal was never on the table. We just don't have that kind of leverage over Iran. And the idea that, we, and, and, and the belief that we do, and this is ultimately what it comes back mm-hmm. to is there is still on the right. And and it's, a, I feel like it's actually weakened a little bit, a little bit strangely because the rights um, isolationist, um, the isolationist wing of the right has gotten a little bit stronger, a little bit more strident in the last few years. And so they're, they're a little less unified in their idea that we should be interventionist all you know as interventionists as we care to be damn the consequences. Uh, but nonetheless, there's still a you know a, a string of thinking on a strain of thinking on the right, which is we can basically bully people into doing whatever into doing whatever we want them to do. In spite of absolutely all historical precedent, which suggests that when we do attempt to bully, when we do attempt to just use force to coerce people into doing things, there tends they either don't do it, or there tends to be very there tend to be you know very damaging long term consequences. So the real strength of this deal, to the extent that it has one, and it definitely does, is that again, this was not about making the Iranians do all the things that we want them to do. It was about making them do one thing that we wanted them to do, which is stop developing nuclear weapons. And in that, in that respect, it's been successful. If it is not doing that, then that's a separate question. But I mean, the evidence
1: so far suggests it's working. Yeah. That and again, that so that's the key question. It's not what else the deal didn't touch um, because the deal couldn't touch things. It's like you go try to buy a used car, but you also want the guy's house. That, like that wasn't an option. You're there to get a car, and you can have an argument that it was too narrow, narrow focused. But then you have to answer the question: How are you? How are you going to broaden the scope? Of what you were actually going to be having conversations about. And there was no uh, stick or carrot left. The no. sanctions had gotten to the point, um, and you, they, The Economist, I believe, and I think I put this up on the Taking Ship Twitter feed uh, last week, The Economist had a great graph um, of uh, plotting out when different sanctions, uh, both the US sanctions and the international sanctions, went into effect, charted against um, the, the growth of, uh, uh, of Iran's centrifuge program. Um, they were still doing things. The sanctions didn't stop them from doing what what we didn't want them to be doing. And when it got to the point that the other countries that were vital to actually make the sanctions stick said, we're not doing sanctions anymore, um, you lost a lot of leverage. And so, again, it was about the nuclear program. You couldn't make it about other things because there was no opportunity to. Yeah. And the second thing that I think that people have just decided to look past and not talk about is you can't take back what's happened since the deal was signed. You can't take back that um, the, um, the world economy opened to the Iranians to some extent, even though there are some sanctions still in place over uh, their nefarious behavior and ballistic missile technology, um, but that fifty billion to $120, billion, $130 billion that was returned to Iran was their money that they were going to get back at some point regardless. That wasn't just money that was never going back into their economy. And you also can't talk about the growth of Iran and their, you know, the expansion of their network and reach throughout the Middle East as horrible as it is. And as Frank said, the the war in Yemen, the war in Syria, um, that's all awful, horrible, horrific things. But you can't change history. That's stuff that is happening now. And I don't see that it's incredibly valid to bring those up as proof points right now because that's just stuff that's happening. And then the third part, and this is really the most important thing. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring up the Iran deal today at all um, we are going to talk about it in great and greater detail as we get closer to make uh, as we get closer in the next two weeks. We're going to try to get some guests who really know what they're talking about, as opposed to the two of us. Um, but the third thing, and this is something that I've noticed uh, in, on the right of people who are you know, virulently anti the Iran deal, uh, who have started to soften uh, about maybe pushing Trump to sign the waivers again, is that with Team Chaos in the White House. Um, there has been no calculation for how to deal with the repercussions of walking away from the deal. Um, no calculations on the public side, and there's no one working on the inside because there is no one there uh, to calculate that either. So walking away from this thing is basically, you know, throwing a match into a room, closing the door, walking away, and pretending nothing's going to happen to the rest of the house. Yeah, it's and, and that uh, <clears throat> that ultimately is... That's the real danger here. Is there
0: are foreseeable reper- There are foreseeable consequences immediately if we pull out of the deal. Uh, but there are a large number of unforeseen consequences here, and I absolutely guarantee you uh, that just no planning at all has gone into that, into, into what happens or how to deal with it within the administration. Just, just none.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, the last the last thing I'll, I'll say on this is people need to envision Trump deciding that he wants to walk away from this thing. So he says that all the negatives of the deal outweigh the positives of the deal. And that's why he's walking away from it, because it's no longer in the national security interests of the United States. However, now all the things that people say is bad about the deal still exist. But the one good thing of the deal, preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon for at least a year, also no longer exists. Or it remains intact because the
0: Iranians decide, because every other partner in the deal remains compliant. Iran decides to remain compliant. And what we have just shown the world is the world doesn't need us anymore, right?
1: And, and so, so long, North, North Korea. Yeah. denuclearization, which is a great
0: fucking look for us. Yeah, yeah. All speaking, right. Speaking of good looks, now that we're ginned up. In other words, yeah, that's exactly. Now that we're just goddamn, I'm you know I'm full of coffee and ready to fight. Uh, actually, now that now that we're now that we're good, now that we're good and ginned up and ready to fight, uh, we're actually going to try and sound another reasonable note here. Uh, which is unusual for us, but bear with us. Uh, there was a little dust up uh, uh, within democratic politics this week. Uh, a, a congressional candidate in uh, in the Colorado sixth congressional district, uh, which is uh, Boulder and in some of the surrounding area. Uh, a guy named Levi Tillman uh, went and had a meeting with, uh, it sounds St. like Florida. he
1: walked right out of the Deadwood set, by the way.
0: Levi Tillman. Yeah. Right. And, uh, what, what what isn't just swearing and firing a pistol crazily in the
1: end?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, that guy, he's got a mouth on him. Um, now, Levi Tilleman uh, rolled up uh, into this meeting with Steny Hoyer as part of the Democratic leadership and and, and recorded this conversation with Congressman Hoyer. Tilleman, again, congressional candidate, Colorado 6th, he is running against Jason Crow. Uh, Jason Crow is, so it's a contested Democratic primary. Crow is the favorite of the what you might call the party establishment uh, in Washington. Also in Colorado, incidentally, uh, very popular with the with the party establishment there. Levi Tillman's been running as a kind of anti-establishment Democrat. Uh, Crow is the favorite t- to
1: win that race. Uh, he has the fundraising edge. He has all these other edges. Uh, he is, uh, is because dumb, I'm dumbest timeline America. We're just going to continue fighting the 2016 primary, gonna, and, and that's exactly what's up. like. This is very much a proxy for the 2016 for the 2016 fight. Uh,
0: Tilleman has all the uh, sorry uh, Crow has all the uh, Crow has the, the structural advantages. Uh, he is a uh, he's a veteran. He's a former. Uh, he is he is a, currently an attorney. Um, and, uh, and 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 uh, is a, apparently a sort of a genius. Uh, and worked for the Department of Energy as uh, a fellow of new America, and is kind of particularly an energy genius that's that's his like and, and again when I say genius, I mean the guy went to uh, started college at the age of fifteen and and then moved on to to Yale at sixteen and graduated I think in two and a half or three years um, so like I mean this he's he's quite brilliant in his way um, but but you could make the argument that going to the leadership of the Democratic Party and doing a one- way recording of it so you can later name and shame that that party member is not the smartest move you could possibly make. Anyway, the content of this conversation was, now we're going to get into it, that uh, Hoyer was essentially attempting to persuade him uh, to drop out of the race, uh, or or at least if he is not going to drop out of the race to not attack Jason Crow, because again, they want the party establishment wants Crow coming out of the primary untarnished uh you know without having to fight a you know a long particularly negative primary. Uh that was the point of Hoyer's uh of Hoyer's discussion with with uh, Levi Tillman. Tillman was upset that the party uh was party leadership was involved at all, was picking favorites, uh was you know sort of demanded to know why the why the people weren't being why the voters weren't being allowed to make this decision themselves. He recorded this conversation, he published it. This apparently was allowed because where the conversation was was recorded was a one-party consent state. Uh, it is not a good play if you want to have a future in democratic politics to record a conversation with anyone without their knowledge and publicize it. Uh, it is a spe- ju- This is just a friendly advisory for any of you who are thinking about future political careers. It is also a very, very poor move to do that with uh, a leader w- as, as established as Danny Hoyer. So public service announcement, uh, don't blow your brains out. Okay. But... This has led into a longer conversation about the D and and Hoyer was was doing this in the context of the D Trip, having gotten behind Jason Crow, having declared, having put him on red to blue, having sent him a bunch of resources. All of this stuff was about the D Trip as the uh, executor of uh, of of the establishment of the establishment, which in this case again is the leadership of the Democratic Party in Congress. Uh, picking a picking a candidate that they wanted to have win this primary, so they could go and support them in the general. Uh, <clears throat> that was yeah. This is not the first time they have done that. They've gotten involved in a number of races. Uh, it's they have been. This is the D trip has been trending in this direction for years. For for cycles, we've talked about that. We talked about what they did in the Texas uh, seventh with Laura with the Laura Moser, where they dumped a, a bunch of opposition research uh, on a Democratic candidate in the hopes of driving her out. Which I think. Tactically, was a mistake because nothing will consolidate the anti-establishment uh, side of the Democratic Party like being attacked by the D trip. Anyway, this there's been a hue and a cry about the party uh, picking favorites, not letting the process run, not letting the primary process run its course organically. Uh, with you know the the anti-establishment, the left of the party saying this is you know this is collusion this is established by the by the establishment this is you know corrupt politics this is what you know any number of criticisms that you want to offer and the establishment saying this is how we
1: prevent shit candidates from going on to lose winnable general election it's 100% right when and when the party leaders or establishment gets involved it's no, there's nothing that's going to rally the anti-establishment forces anymore however um i'm a firm believer in uh politics is is um chaos and you need referees and rulemakers somewhere involved. Um, This tends to be, you know, the media plays a role in this. Um, Obviously, voters play a role in this. Money plays a role in this. Um, But in terms of the refereeing, it really is the party leadership um, who has to, you know, has to vet people at some level or another because the party is going to have to back them at some point. And you want the party to feel comfortable in who they're backing. And you hope that the party is going to back the people with the best chance of winning. Uh, look no further than people like Todd Akin and Christine O'Donnell and other folks of Tea Party ilk who uh, took very winnable seats and flushed them down the toilet by being miserable candidates who never should have been allowed to run or at least not not disallowed to run but uh, 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 pressed to not win their mm-hmm. primaries. Sure, if
0: they're and, and I think the Christine O'Donnell one is a really this is the example that we keep coming back to and we think Christine
1: Christine O'Donnell of course ran in Virginia. She released a Delaware. Delaware, sorry, even better. Uh, released an ad uh, saying that she was not a witch. I, I, actually, let me rephrase that: claiming she was not a witch. Yeah, there was a whole thing about witchcraft, and she was she was just a, she was one of these
0: kind of Tea Party, absolutely loose cannons. That was a Senate race that honestly should have been. <laughs> that was a Senate race that really should have been lost by the Democratic Party. Like that was just holy smokes. We should have that. That we should have taken a pass on that one because the uh, the obvious candidate to win and be the standard bearer for the party had to drop out, um, and so a and so the, the kind of the 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 runner up for who would have been uh, by polling numbers the runner up for the Democratic nomination, uh, Chris Coons. Uh, ended up as the Democratic Party's candidate. The polling was bad. This is 2010 when we were just getting massacred all over the country. It was terrible. But Christine O'Donnell, by virtue of being a loose cannon and, and a strange person who just didn't seem able to focus on the election at all, uh, gave the gave the seat away. Uh, and that, that turned out to have been a rather important Senate seat as these things will go. So she's the example that we use. A lot in the Republican Party was just not able to, and because of the way the Tea Party was playing, that was a revolt against the establishment. Um, and you know, and so that was that was a seat that the republican party really needed and and didn't have now Thank god in that case, but what the d trip and uh, you know, I expect the rest of the democratic party machine right now is concerned about is Listen, we are we are you know, there's there may be a a wave coming. There's some data to suggest the wave is coming Uh, that doesn't mean that doesn't obviate the need to scrap for every potential seat and and that means uh, helping make sure that our that that favorites, the people that they think are likely to win general elections, get through with their resources and their reputations intact into the general. Because I can tell you this for nothing, Mike Kaufman. The uh, to bring this back to Colorado, Mike Kaufman, the sitting Republican in the Colorado Sixth, has seen off some some extremely credible. Challengers over the last few years, uh, he is a remarkably robust and resilient uh, Republican incumbent. He has never been more vulnerable than he is this year. If we don't knock him off this year, I don't know when the hell it's going to happen. Uh, and and he is and he needs and he has got to go uh, because he's very clearly someone whose principles are for sale. Um, he is you know he and, and, and if you and you need to look no further than his evolution and then regression on uh, immigration issues to understand the extent to which this guy has no moral, has no apparent uh, intellectual or moral center Um uh, and, and he just and so knocking him off is a massive it would be a considerable priority here uh, there is a favorite candidate and and here, here's the thing that's happening i get that tillman is upset that the leadership of the party tried to ask him to leave the race that would be uh, that would be insulting to me if i were that person because it would suggest that they have no faith in my ability to win this thing I get that that that's tough. He actually has my sympathy on this one. But But I graduated Yale at 15 or whatever. Yeah, but he has no... uh, Yeah, he was 12 years old when he graduated from uh, the London School of Economics. Uh, It was, you know, whatever else. Everybody gets a pony. Infant genius. Uh, But he is... I mean, there's an element of that to this. um, But there is no... But he's not obliged to step out. It's not like the party is using some sort of you know, uh, 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 you know, some sort of procedural skullduggery to get him pulled off the ballot or something. They're just asking him to take one for the, to take one for the party. He's under no obligation to comply. And clearly he is
1: not going to look no further than Donald Trump. Right. And this is just about everything other than kill him and yeah. him from being the nominee. And there is an argument, and then of course the party,
0: and then and and he's an odd case because yeah, the other party did just about everything they could except kill him to be, prevent him from being the nominee, but they never took him seriously. Right, and then he, of course, delivered unto them the White House and an opportunity, but because he is himself so fundamentally messed up, so dysfunctional as a as a candidate and a, and then as a president, and a uh, person, and a person, yeah, and 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 a, and a kind of concept. Uh, you know, the sort of the, the platonic ideal of Donald Trump is dysfunction. Uh, they, he has hamstrung portions of their uh, of their agenda. Now, he has also enabled them, but, but that's a sort of a separate piece. Again, going back to where you're trying to win seat after seat, uh, having a part, it, basically this comes down to this. Either, if you are against Steny Hoyer having conversations like this with, you know, with candidates that the D-trip doesn't favor in contested primaries, Either your view is that party leaders shouldn't interfere; that these that these party leaders shouldn't interfere. Your view is that like that the Democratic part, that the leadership of the Democratic Party makes wrong calls. So they ask good can, if if this is your opinion that they ask viable general election candidates to step out because their judgment is flawed. Uh, then it is incumbent upon you to make a credible case for how Levi Tillman is a better candidate. In the general election, than the than Jason Crow, and your analysis can't say, "Well, he's the true progressive, and therefore that's that's right." That is not a political analysis; that is an ideological talking point. Uh, So, if you, so again, if your view is these, this leadership shouldn't be picking favorites because their judgment is flawed. Fine, but make your case in a way that doesn't say that isn't about. Oh, the most progressive candidate is going to win is going to win every time uh, because that that is just not true. Uh, there may be places where it is, but that is just blanket not true. Or your position is any party leader, party leaders in general, shouldn't interfere with elections. Uh, and and they should just, they should absolutely stay out of it. And if that is your view, uh, I would say the defense of the, the, if that is your view, you have to be willing to write off seats that could have been won if the party had been able to concentrate behind behind, you know, structurally qualified, uh, you know, structurally, you know, candidates you know, and structural vendors qualified, uh, I mean, I guess you would now say it would be establishment back candidates, so you have to be willing to write off some of those seats and accept that you're gonna get some Christine O'Donnells. Uh, and if that's a sacrifice you're willing to make, that's fine. The problem is with uh, the Levi Tillman of the world, or at least to sympathizers, the idea seems to be we can accept a large number of these things in order to have a purely organic primary process. Um, you know, I, I would point out that some of our most important legislation, including the, the Affordable Care Act, passed by very narrow margins. Uh, so when you're trying to pass a legislative agenda, your, your priorities may be a little bit different than having purity of process. Uh, so that, that I think, is where we end up with this. There's, this is not going to go away there will be more stories about uh about you know the d trip and and other parts of the democratic party establishment uh Picking winners in primaries, trying to get their favorite candidates through the general. Uh, but this is this is the latest dust up. And again, I would just close with this: if you're thinking about ever having a current Democratic politics, for God's sake, do not tape a conversation with a party leader, record a party a conversation with a party leader, and then re- and then release it to the press. Uh, that is that will certainly get you struck off forever. And if that's a sacrifice you're willing to make, then fine. But my recommendation is don't
1: do it. Yeah. Or if you're going to record it, don't tell anybody except the person that you've recorded and use it as blackmail. But that's a whole side point. We're not we're not. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a, that's a tradecraft conversation for the day, I think. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I'll add to this is that um, as we learn from the Georgia Sixth, uh, a lot of these districts um, that are potential pickups for the Democrats, there are you know, there may not be enough Democrats in them to win uh, the general election which is why uh, places like where Connor Lamb just won in Pennsylvania, it's so important to find candidates that actually are a reflection of that district and not just a reflection of animosity towards the established party. Um, Mm -hmm. Because those people that reflect those districts are the ones who are best positioned to win. And if the uh, party leaders or the powers that be have decided Levy Tillman is not that person, um, They're probably looking at polling and trending and other sorts of things. And very smart people uh, have made the decision that the other guy has a better chance of winning that district. And uh, to take back the house, there's gonna have to be sacrifices made in the name of purity uh, for pragmatism and party. Yes. In, in order
0: to the, in, for every triumph, a thousand souls must be crushed. No, you're right. But this is like, this is, you really are leaning into the Ozymandias thing, but you're right. I mean, like this is, there are going to be a large number of candidates of good intent and, and, you know, and, and real passion who are not going to make it out of their primaries this cycle en route to what we hope is going to be a, a, a retaking the house, the significant majority. And again, you you are welcome to, to or anyone is welcome to argue with the judgment of as you say, the very smart people who have made this decision. But, but I think one of the things, and here, and here I will, here, here I'll leave off. But I think one of the the animating factors behind angst about the Steny Hoyers of the world getting involved in races like this is this belief that they are doing it because the candidate is progressive right that it's only because the candidate is from the farther left of the party that they're getting involved that's actually not it at all if you have a far left candidate who condemn whose numbers are good and those we're looking at two numbers here we're looking at the surveys so how they're doing uh, in polling and and to you may do some some analytical modeling here as well uh, but how they're doing with the electorate and how they're doing with fundraising which again is still really important uh you know, if you're doing well in both of those things, you know you're going to get support. Uh, you know, that's the question is, can you win this thing? Uh, but the problem is, for various structural reasons that it's a, a longer conversation, those candidates tend not to do, tend not to have good numbers, and and that's that's what will lead the D trip to get involved, with Steny Hoyer and and, and people like that,
1: um, the leadership of the party to get involved with someone else whose numbers are stronger. Yep. And uh, speaking of smart people, and we'll, we'll close out with this before we take ship, um, President Goodbrain best words, um, we've decided could could potentially be trolling us. Uh, we're not entirely sure, but we fear that as we are the own trolled and furious, we've attracted President Trump's ire because we're the only group of angry Americans he hasn't directly uh, reached out to. Um, so with that, uh, the president tweeted um, this past uh, Thursday, Friday, I don't There's so many tweets who remembers at this point. All the the world is a Tuesday afternoon now. Yeah, yeah, in this never-ending Tuesday of Dumbest Timeline America, uh, President Goodbrain Best Words tweeted the following. Is everybody believing what is going on? James
0: Comey can't define what a leak is. He illegally leaked classified information but doesn't understand what he did or how serious it is. He lied all over the place to cover it up. He's either very sick or very
1: dumb. Remember Sailor. When we read this, uh, we first thought that it can only be a reference to the core of Discovery, the crew of Salty Jason's Revenge. Apparently, we may have been mistaken, though. Any message signed, Remember Sailor, has got to be directed to us. I
0: mean, that was our first thought. And, and solipsistic, maybe, but not unreasonable.
1: We are the only people on the seas. And if not that, we are the <laughs> only ones fighting <laughs> fighting the war, the war of the war on the sea these seas are the seas are totally as everyone knows the seas are completely
0: abandoned, except for two guys of the podcast and their guests right we're alone we are alone out here, but I mean you know it 's either that or he's giving us the rhyme of the ancient mariner. I mean those are the only possible explanations <laughs> but it appears a third option may have hove into view,
1: yeah, Donald Trump appears to have uh, been comparing the former FBI the fired FBI director. Um, to, uh, a Navy sailor who was jailed and then pardoned by this president who has also pardoned Scooter Libby and uh, Joe Arpaio. So, you know, that's a good crew you want to be a part of mm-hmm. uh, f- the, this sailor, uh, apparently took photographs inside top secret areas of a nuclear submarine. Uh, that is a big no, no, you don't do yeah, that. You should not do that. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, yeah, Christian Sacher was the, was the, ma- was the name of the relevant Mariner,
0: the sailor that we should all remember <laughs> the rhyme of the relevant Mariner, boy, that's a shitty second draft. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, 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 I think the idea was that he may not have known what he was doing. Like it was one of those, like he may not have known what he was doing. Um, and it's, it's not clear that he was anyway, it's, it's not clear that this was an attempted act of uh, treason, although maybe it was, uh, but it was, it, but in any case, that's the, they they're actually, he wasn't just trolling us or giving us the rhyme of the ancient mariner. There actually was a relevant sailor that we were supposed to remember.
1: Right. But I don't even understand the connection that he's trying to make because he's saying, remember sailors. He's saying, remember the guy who didn't know what he was doing, but I pardoned him because it was okay. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, that, that, that part of it, that part of it really doesn't hold up. Yeah. Um, all, all right. right but uh, rest assured, Mr. President, we will remember the sailor. We will remember the sailor and you will remember us mm-hmm. somehow. Um, when we get Hope Hicks on, as, on her, as her first, uh, post white house interview, you'll remember ex- us. I am extremely looking forward to that. <laughs> that will not at all be the dumbest thing that has ever happened. <laughs> Definitely not the dumbest thing that has ever happened. No. no. Um, speaking of dumb things, uh, and this really is the last thing that we'll bring up today. Uh, yesterday was April 28th, which is a high holiday on here mm-hmm. on Taking shit. It is. It is. We're sorry we weren't able to get this to you beforehand, but I want you all just to, if you didn't recognize it last, yesterday,
0: next year, next April 28th, do not omit to celebrate Ed Balls Day. Frank, tell tell our listeners what Ed Balls' day Ed Balls' day commemorates. Ed Ed Balls' day commemorates. Uh, is this the eighth? Maybe the, this is the eighth anniversary. I think of uh, of Ed Balls' day. Ed Balls' day. Ed Balls was the. Uh, I'm just going to say Ed Balls as much as possible. Ed Balls uh, worked for Gordon Brown uh, in the New Labour government. He was the Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, under Ed Miliband, which is, essentially means that he was the uh, in the in america it would be the equivalent of being the head of the omb and the head of treasury and the head of the national economic council and a few other things uh rolled into one he was that guy in waiting uh for a number of years uh, which is also just an awesome title by the way it is oh head of the Excellent. chancellor of the exchequer is, I mean, it's, it's just, much much better than anything we've ever conjured up the only uh, the only the only competition to it being supreme commander allied forces europe yeah uh, i mean which you know honestly is is yet to be beat but uh, anyway, so he, he uh, was a labor leadership contender, blah, blah, blah. He's a pu- very public figure in the Labor Party, uh, was shopping one day, uh, looked uh, pulled out his phone and attempted to search his own name on Twitter. There's no way to pretend this didn't happen. He's at least come clean about that and attempted to search his own name, Ed Balls, except he tweeted his own name. And so the account Ed Balls just said the words Ed Balls. And it became it was such a wonderful encapsulation of everything, especially Ed Balls, that it was widely celebrated and has now become a an international holiday. Uh, so next August 28th or April 28th, excuse me, uh, next year April 28th, uh, do not omit to celebrate Ed Balls Day. Uh, go ahead, go ahead and tweet the words.
1: It's fun. yeah, and you know to give credit to Ed Balls, uh, he leaned into it. And yeah. uh, I would recommend no, not originally, originally it, he right. was
0: obviously embarrassed as well. He might've been, but, right. but in Any sense,
1: and yeah. I, I think that there's a lot to be learned from that. You know, when you do something just cosmically dumb, yeah. um, own up to it, it can be funny later down the line yeah
0: as people who have done a large number of extravagantly dumb things uh we can say with absolute authority uh there's no point in denying
1: it uh so we will not deny that we made this podcast and uh we will thank you for subscribing <laughs> and rate us <laughs> subscribe and rate us on on whatever platform you decide to use uh, please follow us on twitter at taking ship and that's ship with a p as in uh well president Goodbrain Bestwords. best words. Um, you can also follow Frank at, at, Frank spring and me at Ellie Jacobs. And now you can go to our website, which is takingship.com. And, uh, our Twitter feeds are on there as is a contact form where you can get in touch with us and uh, let us know where you feel, uh, how many t-shirts you want to order. Uh, we will soon be revealing the, the, uh, design of said t-shirt, which may entice you all into purchasing more, um, so, with all that, Frank, where are we headed this week?
0: We are headed this week to the Gulf of Oman, uh, where footage recently serviced of a parcel of camels uh, swimming across what appeared to be the Gulf of Oman. It later turned out that they were not swimming across the Gulf, but only because that particular footage was not, that this, the water, the body of water in that particular footage, uh, which I think was on National Geographic, was not in fact the Gulf of Oman. But they do actually swim across the Gulf, uh, it transpires. Camels can cross the ocean, uh, not obviously a raging sea, but they can they can cross oceans. This is incredibly impressive, uh, just as a, as a strict feat of athleticism and biology. Uh, but also, it raises the interesting question of what exactly were these camels doing as they attempted to cross the Gulf of Oman? And and again, as part of this continued war on war on the sea, which again I maintain as a defensive war uh, in the sea's war on us, the war of uh, of oceanic aggression. Uh, I want to know some things from these camels. There are basically two options here. Either these camels have gone rogue and were attempting a uh, a recon in force uh, in the ocean without orders, in which case I would like to know what they learned and also what the hell they thought they were playing at. Or failing that, uh, the camels uh, may, we may have lost the camels, the camels may, may, we need to look at them very seriously as being aquatic assets. Uh, And so we go now, so we're going to have to head down there to have a few words with them. I'm sure it's going to be a riveting conversation that will not involve us just being bitten and spit on. Uh, But then again, we know which of our international travels don't involve some of that. Uh, And we're going to find out what these camels know. Uh, So friends, uh, we take ship now for the Gulf of Oman. Take care, everybody.